Uh, we're in the season of Lent, uh, the 40 days that lead up to uh, that week we call the Passion Week. We have these titles that we, we use to sort of summarize the final week of Jesus' life. If you look at the Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you, you'll see that the greatest uh, amount of, of space in the Gospels is given to one week, the final week of Jesus' life. And uh, so we're going to look, uh, starting next week, at uh, that week. We're going to take about a month and a half, whatever remains of uh, this season between now and Good Friday and Easter, and focus on that final week. We're going to start with next week. We're going to talk with, uh, start with Palm Sunday and how Jesus is lifted up as our, our king. Uh, then we're going to talk about Wednesday night and Thursday night and Friday Saturday and Sunday. And so I hope you'll come as we kind of just think through the days of that week over the course of a month and a half, because you could do it in a day, but then that's a little fast. So we're going to take a a week for each day. Today we're continuing in our theme of return to the Lord our God. And if we were going to kind of recap last week when we talked about uh, Lent for the first time, uh, a week and a half ago, uh, Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, which is traditionally when Lent begins. And uh, some people have different phrases about Lent. Uh, so just to recap last week, not in your notes, but uh, here uh, on the screen, Lent isn't uh, mainly about what we give up. It might, in fact, involve something that we give ourselves to, not about what we give up, but something we give ourselves to. Uh, and it isn't even primarily about us, what I, what I sacrifice or what I give up. It's about Jesus. It's about what he gave up for us. It can be about fasting in one sense, fasting from me, fasting from ourselves, fasting fasting from uh, being preoccupied with our own uh, situation and concerns and uh, uh, focused and set on him, fasting from me so I can follow him. So it's a time of not just giving up, but a time of taking in of God's life and God's love for us. This week, uh, I want to look as, at uh, a passage of Scripture that talks about returning. And that word return is uh, uh, related to the word for repent. But when we heard the word repent, it seems like kind of an old-fashioned word. Uh, sometimes uh, in our culture, we might have it uh, typified by a, a, wild eyes, a wild-eyed, um, kind of a wild hair, uh, bedraggled-looking uh, fellow wearing uh, a sandwich board that says, repent for the end is near. Uh, And uh, it kind of just is a comical figure to elicit a a humorous response. But the concept of returning, of getting back on the right track, is one that appeals to all of us. We all want to be going in the same direction. None of us like hearing uh, our our uh, uh, phones or our GPS telling us, recalculating, recalculating, you've missed the route, uh, make a U-turn at the next uh, light. There's a restaurant I, I go to sometimes, and uh, on the way back from uh, west uh, of us, uh, it's not that hard of, of directions, but it's hard for the GPS. So it has me turning left, make a U-turn. It's got all kinds of, you know, I have to just shut it off when I get close. It's too agitating. Well, Malachi 3 talks about us returning to the Lord our God. And there's some language in it that is surprising to us. 
And it's one of the uh, significant passages that instructs us on what uh, the significance is of our bringing our tithe and our offering to the Lord. So Malachi 3, starting at verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So, and here it is, return to me. You have turned away, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? It's almost as if they're asking, what do you mean we've turned away from your decrees and and that we need to return from you? And the prophet goes on, will a mere mortal rob God? I meant to tell you that one of our members here is going to be referred to four times and see if you can figure out who it is. Rob and Joan, please pay attention. We're a mere mortal, rob God. Yet you, second time, rob me. But you ask, in case we miss it, but you ask, how are we robbing you? And God answers, in tithes and offerings. In fact, you're under a curse, your whole nation, because here's the fourth time, you are robbing me. So, verse 10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And test me in this. We talked about the temptation of Jesus or the testing of Jesus a couple weeks back. And in thinking about that time, we know that Scripture tells us that we're not to test God. We're not to put God to the test. When God makes a promise, we're not to kind of live life in a a wild way, forcing, so to speak, God's hand to to uh, kind of comply with our demand for uh, something spectacular. You remember that Jesus talked about a certain group of people that were always looking for a sign. They always want something spectacular. The fact that God says, said it uh, isn't always enough for them or for us. But in this case, it's the one time in Scripture that God says, I want you to try this out. I want you to experiment here and test me to see if this is true or not. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. That seems like a test that's a lot more appealing than a lot of the tests that we think of, right? Whether it's a a schoolwork or whether it's a, a DMV test, or I'm sure some of you have been in the process, as we've already done, uh, our income tax. It's a bit of a test. This is a test that results in this, God throwing open the floodgates of heaven and pouring out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. How how does that take place? God says, "I'll, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. There's something horrible when something is taken from us, whether the In an agrarian society where you depend on what you grow uh, for your survival, both what you eat but what you can sell, uh, to have uh, God preventing the pests from devouring the crops and the vines of the field, not dropping their fruit before it's ripe is a powerful thing. We don't like to be robbed of anything, and God doesn't either. Uh, This morning, uh, some of you were robbed of an hour of sleep. Can I see a row of hands? Is there anybody here who likes daylight savings time? Frank likes it. 
That seems about right. Oh, Joan likes it. Okay, okay. What do you like about it? More daylight? More daylight. Two out of, okay, all right, you know. Uh, I know there's uh, some bit of a grassroots movement to do away with daylight savings time, and I would be happy for that because the adjustment, uh, you know, medical specialists tell us that the adjustment is very bad on our hearts, uh, and so the incidence of heart attacks and strokes and things goes up when there's daylight savings time adjustment. But I've already made you nervous by talking about coronavirus and the flu, so maybe we should go back to Scripture. God flew in, throwing open the floodgates of heaven, pouring out so much blessing, there's not room enough to store it. Uh, verse 12, as a result, all the nations will call you blessed. Everybody around us even will be able to tell that God's hand is on us, that we've been blessed by God. Yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. What, what are we understanding to understand from uh, the prophet Malachi and what he records of God's heart for us? Well, number one, write down that God is gracious. God is gracious, but we are rebellious. God is gracious, but we are rebellious. I was struck as I was looking at this passage that focuses on, our, on what we give to God, our tithes and offerings, that it actually starts with God and his goodness. I, the Lord, do not change. I am the same God yesterday, today, forever. And what about God doesn't change? God is a God of love. He was, he is, he will be. He's the God of all comfort. He's the Father of mercies. He was, he is, and he will be. He's the God who is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger. He doesn't have a hair-trigger temper. He is abounding in love. That's a reflection of this passage as well. The Lord, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. So God's patience with us is why we aren't destroyed despite us not doing what God has called us to do in the first uh, two chapters and the first section of Malachi 3 as well. Uh, talk about different ways that Israel, the descendants of Jacob, uh, the people of God, but we all identify with these things, how we tend to try to minimize what God has said and, and walk our own path. Um, so God is gracious, but we are rebellious. But number two, there is a, a problem. There is a specific problem, which is, verse 7, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Uh, and this isn't even a new problem because the prophet says, you've been doing this ever since the time of your ancestors. And so God says, you've got a problem, but it's not something that's just cropped up uh, in, in this month or this year or this decade or this century or this millennia. It's been happening for a long time. You come from a long line of people who have not done what I've called you to do. You've turned away. You've gotten off the track. You need to be in the process of recalculating. And so there is a problem. But number three, there is a solution. And this is the good news. This is the grace of God. God doesn't change. He always gives us a solution when we're in the middle of a difficult situation, which is to return to me. Verse 7 in the second phrase of that, return to me. Now, it's interesting that that first line says, ever since the time of your ancestors, you turned away from my decrees. 
from my commands. And some people view our relationship to God just as uh, God as being a rule-giving God, and we are kind of uh, uh, either two-year-olds or teens who want to go our own direction. I shouldn't say that as if to imply it that we can't do that when we're 20 or 30 or in every age of our life, right? But we want to kind of go our own way, our own path. And God says, uh, though, we aren't just breaking one of his commandments. We've turned away from his commandments, and we've not kept them. But the solution is return to me. So when he's saying, you haven't kept my commandments, you have turned away from my commandments, he's ultimately saying, you've turned away from me. Because his commandments, Scripture says elsewhere, right? The uh, first John, the first letter of, uh, of uh, the Apostle John to his uh, younger friends, he says uh, that God's commands are not burdensome. God's commands aren't given to us to crush us, but to give us life, to stimulate life in us and to bless us and to encourage us. So ultimately he's saying not just there's commands that you're not obeying, but that's important because they're God's commands. He's saying, you have turned away from me. But now the solution is very simple. Take a U-turn. And the season of Lent is indeed intended to help all of us, no matter what our relationship to God, to consider the path that we're on and to consider how well we are aligned with the cross of Jesus Christ, whether we're following God in that way. Sometimes when I do marriage counseling, one of my encouragement is to encourage uh, each individual husband and wife to be sure they're cultivating their own relationship with God, not d- waiting for the other individual to, to kind of encourage them to follow God, but to follow God on their own. And it's one of the most important things we can do in our marriages because uh, when two people are on two different tracks, every couple who comes in to get married, with very few exceptions, are pretty starry-eyed. They're full of, it's very easy for them to, you know, I say, give me 10 reasons why you want to marry so-and-so. And they'll sit there and they'll, some people give me 15, you know, but they, they really think about it and they can come up with, with, with character quality uh, and uh, area of giftedness uh, one after another with very little effort. Some of those same couples come back in three weeks, three months, three years and can't think of anything good to say about the person that was so important to them. But you see, when we're together, that's wonderful. But the path that we're on is what determines our future. And when a couple is together and yet going in different directions, uh, apparently NASA tells us that uh, if our trajectory is off just uh, one degree from our intended destination, uh, over time we end up so far apart. Have you ever known someone that you were close to at one season of time who stops following Jesus and you get together with them down the road and you find yourself thinking, who is that person? I don't even know who that person is. They are so different. But if both husband and wife, for example, are following Jesus, no matter where they go in life, how they meander, because we all do, they end up coming closer as they come together in Christ. We're to be in Christ. That's actually our identity, is to be in Christ. So the solution is to return to God, to turn back to God. And so the first thing that I want to say, and you're saying, well, I don't know why you're talking about tithing here. It's coming. 
But the first thing I want to say about tithing, just a little kind of principle for us uh, in your notes uh, next to that little arrow, write down that tithing isn't just financial. Tithing isn't just financial. It is relational. Tithing isn't just financial. It is relational. God says that uh, when we don't tithe, it hurts our relationship with him. And we have turned away from him, and we need to return to him. Tithing isn't just financial. It is relational. Along with this problem, there's a solution. But along with the solution, number four, there's a resolution that also comes. Return to me, God says, and I will return to you. That's wonderful news. That's clarifying the relational problem. We've turned away from God. We've gone our own path. God says, return to me, and God will return to us. And I love the fact that in Scripture, and this is quite clear from the uh, first to the last pages of God's Word, uh, a second principle here next to that little triangle, God always takes the initiative. God always takes the initiative to restore our relationship when it's broken. He always takes the initiative to restore our broken relationships. Roman 5 tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebels shaking our fists in the direction of the mighty God, God demonstrated his love for us at exactly that moment while we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against him, turning from him, uh, turning away from him. He demonstrated his love in this. Christ died for our sins. God always takes the initiative to restore our broken relationship. There's no section of Scripture that doesn't record the initiative of God to communicate his heart and his love. The parts of the Old Testament or the New Testament that we may even think of and say, well, sometimes that seems kind of negative. A lot of people will reference, for example, the Ten Commandments as being a negative section. It's all about, Christianity is all about stuff that you, that you can't do or you shouldn't do, don't do, thou shalt not. But even the Ten Commandments doesn't start with a negative. It starts with an affirmation of God's initiative, right? It starts like this, not with thou shalt not. It starts with these words, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery out of a land of death into a new land flowing with all the things you want to enjoy. And uh, that Old Testament Hebraic uh, summary, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? All the things that the land can produce that you can enjoy. I am the Lord your God who gave you all these extraordinary gifts. And on the basis of that, I want to help you live in such a way that you continue to flourish. So don't have other gods. Don't follow other gods. Don't steal from other people. Don't murder people. Don't lie. Things that have a universal, beneficial result, no matter what era they're put into practice. God always takes the initiative to restore our broken relationship. Well, how can we return to God? Even in the text, uh, the people respond, how are we to return? Well, I think there's three ways, four ways. Letter A, we need to stop rubbing, robbing God. Again, I apologize, Rob, for singling you out for abuse here. But the word is repeated four times. We're, we're meant to pay attention to this phrase, this shocking phrase, 
How can mere mortals rob God? But God says, you rob me. You ask, how are we robbing you? He says, in tithes and offerings. You're robbing me, and you have invited a curse upon yourself. Life isn't going the way that you'd like it to because you are robbing me. None of us like to be robbed. You, you can tell from just even my spirit today, just a little tiny bit of anger at whoever thought up daylight savings time, right? I was robbed of an hour last night, uh, and I'm not happy about it. I've had uh, a car that was stolen from in front of a, an apartment uh, many, many years ago. My roommate, who many of you know who that was, uh, came home, and he said, uh, so you sold your, your Volkswagen? I said, no. He said, yeah. You, you, didn't you sell it? I said, no. He said, well, it's not in front anymore. And I'm like, yeah, it is because it's been there for months. And looked out the window, and it, it wasn't there. Turns out I was out in uh, the East San Gabriel Valley. Uh, and I got a call about a month later from the San Gabriel Valley Sheriff's Station that invited me to come down and join with quite a few other people who had their cars stolen and that were found together in someone's garage in various states of undress and not the people but the cars. And so there was basically kind of a, a graveyard of, of body parts of cars and we had to pick out what was ours. I think that's, the, you know, my, my little Volkswagen, it was off the frame. It's like, I, I think, yeah, that's my, that's, the, that's my Volkswagen and that's the frame that it's supposed to be on. I mean, down to, that's my tire, that's my wheel, that's my gear shift knob. Now, to that point, they did a thorough job. Well, there, there's a feeling of violation when someone steals something from us. I was coaching uh, the boys' baseball team here at West Covina Christian School a number of years ago. And we were getting, uh, the boys were getting change ready for practice. And my son, Stephen, had ridden his bike to school and rode his bike over to the refuge and was uh, getting changed inside. And we saw kind of a kid kind of just walk up and grabbed his bike, hopped off, and, and took off. Well, I hadn't gotten my shoes on yet. I hadn't got my cleats on yet. And I took off running after this kid who looked back to see a, a, a angry, grown man chasing him through the parking lot full of people coming to pick up their children. And I yelled at one of the dads who I had never met and said, hey, follow that bike, and jumped in his truck. He's like, okay, here we go. And we drove down the street. And by the time we got to the gas station on the corner, we had caught up, and the guy looked fairly alarmed and jumped off his bike and took off running. Uh, and uh, there's a sense of violation when someone takes something that's not theirs. And God says, you're robbing me. And he says it four times to get our attention. Don't do that. Return to me. And we do that by, by letter B, Bring, we need to bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord. You're, you're robbing me, so bring the whole tithe. This is how we return. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. We're to bring that to the Lord. And we'll talk about where that storehouse is, what is my house. Letter C, we need to bring the whole tithe to the Lord, right? Bring the whole tithe. Maybe circle that word to the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, uh, a tithe is simply another word for a tenth or 10%. When we bring a tithe, it's 10% of uh, what God has blessed us with financially, all of our material possessions. When we bring an offering, it's uh, a gift to the Lord or it's an over and above gift over and beyond our tithe. 
So if, as you look back, uh, you give the Lord uh, 1% of your income, then that's not a tithe. If you give 2%, 3%, etc., to 9%, that's not a tithe. That's a gift. It's a donation. It's important and valuable. Remember the story of the widow who gave the, the mites, which were essentially two copper coins, to like pennies, two cents. It was everything she had. And Jesus blessed her and commended her for her generosity and for her grace in giving. But a tithe means a tenth. Leviticus is one example. A, a tithe or a tenth of all you produce, it's the Lord's. It's to be holy to the Lord's. It's his and his alone. It's not for us to enjoy. This is my mug. It's holy to me. That doesn't mean it has some kind of a special religious meaning. It just means if you come up right now in the era that we're in and try to take a sip of my mug, I might not be happy about it, right? It's holy to me. You have things that are holy to you. God says, that's holy to me. That 10% of what I've blessed you with, you need to bring that to the Lord. Because number one, a tithe means a tenth. Number two, apparently many people were only bringing, bringing a partial tithe which is an oxymoron, like jumbo shrimp, right? Microsoft works. There's, there's more you can think of, right? Uh, there's no such thing as a par- partial tithe, a partial tenth. A partial tenth is not a tenth, right? And so many were bringing only a, a partial tenth. Uh, I think it's, and if I can find it real quick, Randy Elkhorn has written two wonderful books on money. One is called Managing God's Money, uh, uh, a biblical guide. Wonderful little book, very inexpensive. Uh, actually got this one from our credit union. Uh, another one called Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And in that, he has some facts that are pretty fascinating. And it isn't that one as I'm looking at it quick, so it's this one. But I thought this was very, very striking. The average giving of American Christians to support their churches, their spiritual leaders, their missions work, and the needy, the average giving of an American Christian totals about 2.5%. That's a quarter of a tithe. That's remarkable. Uh, for people who uh, look back at this season of time as we look back uh, to gather our data and our financial records for the previous year to uh, process what our taxes are. Uh, as we look back, it's remarkable to look back and find out. Yeah, this amazing statistic, but I didn't mark it properly. And I'm not seeing it, so I won't quote it. Um, but the amount that we think that we give uh, in our minds when we go back and research is typically a considerable percentage less. And he also points out that in the case of 40% of Christians, Professing Christians, according to self-survey, give away nothing. That's astounding. <clears throat> That's robbing God. So we're to bring the whole tithe. Uh, many people just bring a partial. And number three, many weren't bringing their first and best to the Lord. They weren't bringing their first and the best to the Lord. They weren't giving God the... 
the, the tenth of the, the prime ribeye, they were giving him the leftover of the stuff that they didn't really want anymore anyway. In fact, we don't have time to, to go there, but the first chapter of Malachi talks about God being offended at what people bring as, God, we just saw this and we thought of you. And so just listen, I'll just read a couple uh, of, of, the, of, the, of the verses from Malachi chapter 1 that people thought God might be grateful for. He says, you have shown contempt for my name. How, they say, by offering defiled food on my altar. What, what do you mean defiled food? When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them, you know, to your government leaders for taxes and see if they're happy with that, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured or lame or, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord? No. And so we want to bring the first and the best of what we do. We want to give the best that we can to, to, to God. When we're doing our job, we work as to the Lord, and we work uh, uh, to the utmost of our capacity, regardless of who our bosses are or how they treat us, because we're working for the Lord. We're not working for human beings. And we're to bring God the, the first of our fruits. We're to give the King James here is interesting. Uh, Thou shalt not delay to offer, so don't wait to offer the first of your ripe fruits and of their, your liquors. Well, liquors are what result from the fruits that are fermented, right? The grapes that are fermented. The firstborn of your sons shall you give to me. Likewise shall you do with thine ox and with thy sheep. In other words, the firstborn, the first and the best. New Living says, don't hold back anything when you give to me the tithe, the tenth of your crops and your wine. The whole tithe, the the first and best of what you've got. Letter D, where are we to bring our tithe? Where are we to bring our tithe? There's two phrases he uses in verse 10. One is bring the whole tithe, he says, into the storehouse. So that's pretty clear, into the storehouse, but we need to find out what that is. That there may be food, here's the second one, that there may be food in my house, in God's house. So where are we to bring our tithe? The first is into the storehouse. That's essentially the base of uh, our ministry operations as the people of God. If you look in the Old Testament, you can look up storehouse, and you can find in Chronicles, you can find uh, the storehouse that is uh, the treasury for the people of God that they collect to be able to sustain the life of the people of God together. And there are gatekeepers who are, have duties you remember that verse, the Psalms, uh, I'd rather be a gatekeeper in the house of the Lord, a doorkeeper. Well, there are people who had these positions in the temple uh, as their relatives had. And uh, there are some people who cared for and guarded the storehouse. This is uh, 1 Chronicles 26. 1 Chronicles 26. So that's the kind of the place from which the ministry takes place. <clears throat> Number two is to my house, that there may be food in my house. And he says, uh, I believe that the house is the place that God makes himself at home. I don't want to make this too complicated, a theological uh, discussion and, and minutia and trivia. My house, God's house, is the place where God makes himself at home, the place where God meets with his people. 
in Deuteronomy 26.2, not in your notes and not on the screen, but I'm going to read it for you. Uh, we're given some clarity about God's home. Where does God live? Uh, he, he says, Deuteronomy 26.2, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land and the Lord your God is giving you. Put them in a basket and then take them to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. A dwelling for his name. Exodus 23.19 says, Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. So it's the place the Lord makes himself at home among his people. It's the, in the Old Testament be the, the uh, tent of meeting. Uh, earlier on with uh, Jacob, it was, if you remember, it was a rock where J Jacob wrestled with God. He called it the house of God. Uh, back in the Old Testament days, the Hebrew Scriptures days, it was uh, Israel's uh, uh, tent of meeting and then the tabernacle and then ultimately their temple. Now it's the local church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? What happens in a temple? Well, God's spirit dwells in your midst. It's the, the residing spot of God with his people. It's the place where heaven touches earth. And the temple of God, where God's home, as it would be for all of us, is important. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred. And look at it. He repeats what he said at the first. You yourselves are that temple. So not us as individual believers, but all of us to, together, collectively, as a, as a church family, we are that temple. It's powerful. And so we're to bring the tithe into the storehouse, into the house of God, the place where God makes himself at home, the place where we minister and we serve together. Paul, in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, says something similar <clears throat> on this side of the cross of Jesus. He says that each one of you, on the first day of every week, should set aside a specific sum of money that's in proportion to what you have earned and use it for the offering. God doesn't ask us to give him everything, but it, Scripture tells us that everything does belong to God, but he asks us to return the tithe for a number of reasons that we'll talk to in a moment. When we get blessed, Romans 15 tells us, when we get blessed spiritually, we owe it to share material blessings to those who have blessed us in that way. Well, number six, and we close here. Why does tithing matter so much about God? Some people might put it this way. Why do churches always talk about money? Why does tithing matter so much? As we've just seen from Malachi 3. It's for four reasons, I believe, that because when we don't tithe, when we aren't faithful in stopping the robbing of God that we've been doing, turning away from his decrees, and turning away from God by not tithing, letter A, our relationship with God is damaged. Our relationship with God is damaged. Deuteronomy 14.23 in the Living Bible says that the purpose of tithing is to teach you, not in your notes, but it's, just listen to it, Deuteronomy 14.23, the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your lives. When we don't tithe, our relationship to God is damaged. 
He calls out to us, says, you're robbing me. It's affecting our relationship. Tithing isn't just financial. It's, a re it's relational. Let her be. When we don't tithe, our pastors aren't resourced to live out their calling. I see this in verse 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. That there may be food in my house. How do, you, how do we understand that phrase? Food in my house. Well, I, I believe there's physical food he's talking about and spiritual food. The people of Israel were to <clears throat> give uh, their tithes so that the priests and the worship leaders and the Levites and the other leaders or those who serve as gatekeepers uh, in the temple, uh, there's physical food that was provided through the giving of, uh, of the, all the people of God. And it's giving to take care of the people who are called to serve in the house of God. But I think there's also spiritual food and nourishment that's provided. Uh, and that's seen in, in our next phrase, letter C. When we don't tithe, not only are our pastors not resourced to live out their calling, but letter C, our church's work or ministry is impaired. What we are, as a church are called to do in our community, in our world, it's impaired. Uh, how so? That's, uh, I believe, not just taking care of the, the, the workers, the pastors, the other staff, uh, even our missionaries, right? But also now looking out for the purpose of what, why we're together as a church family, to provide spiritual nourishment for people in our community or in our world who are lost or who are literally hungry, who are broken, and we're called to serve them. And so the tithing helps the ministry of the church flourish, helps us more effectively reach out to our community and to our world. Letter D, when we don't tithe, the blessing that God wants to lavish on us is restricted. None of us want to clamp off the channel through which God pours out blessing on us. Again, as we're praying with Claire, it was so moving to share and I, <clears throat> as she's calling out the blessings of God, laying flat in a hospital bed, hoping that she'll be get healthy enough, strong enough to be able to go back to her home, uh, ready to go to her heavenly home if need be, with joy, knowing where she's going, at peace over the process, but then calling out the blessings of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God, in so many ways other than just financial. That's one way we get blessed, but it's not the only. And God says, listen, when you're faithful in tithing, there's food in my house, and I will throw open the floodgates of heaven. I, I picture kind of in a a time of a, a winter storm that we don't always get in California. But when they open the floodgates, maybe beside the dam that's holding back that water, and that water just comes gushing forth uh, so, so powerfully that it can even sweep people away who are caught unexpecting. Uh, un, un, uh, and that flood will pour out so much blessing that there won't be room enough to store it. That will be overwhelmed and over overflowed uh, with the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God. Uh, our relationship with God is vital. Uh, uh, yesterday, we got uh, texts from uh, Shelby that had some great videos. Uh, uh, Shelby and Ryan had been alone for three weeks as, uh, uh, Shelby and Lucas, sorry, had been alone for three weeks as Ryan was stationed for three weeks 
<clears throat> doing some training in Thailand. Uh, and uh, he got home yesterday, so she had just pictures of Ryan coming in the door and just Luca's face. Just Luca's face at seeing his dad. But, but it, after, after three weeks, <clears throat> you know, that's a long time to be away. And so the last time I talked with Sh- uh, Shelby and Luca on FaceTime, he kept calling me daddy. So I'm like, we need to get Ryan home. <laughs> you know? So he comes home, and you just see Luca. His eyes are like this. Then he just goes into Ryan's arms and just puts his hand on him, his head on his shoulder, and Shelby just has that little face, so happy that his father is home. And tithing matters deeply to our father, and we can return to our father and experience that embrace and that welcoming home. When we tithe our pastors, our staffs, our missionaries, our resource to to live out the calling that God has given them in the world, our church's ministry is free and can flourish in our community and the blessing that God wants to lavish on us. The floodgates are open, God says. Living God, there's a number of ways that we could respond to this message. I believe most people here would love to have the floodgates of God thrown open and to have you throw out so much, pour out so much blessing there's not room enough to store it. I pray that that would be a reality for uh, your fo- the followers of God. God, you bless us no matter what we do. The same rain, Jesus said, the same rain falls on the wicked and on the righteous. The same sun warms and gives life to people who do what's right and people who do what's wrong. God, you are lavish and you are generous in all that you do. But I believe you call us to be faithful and that you long to be gracious and you look forward to throwing open the floodgates of heaven and pouring out blessings on us beyond what we could even expect. Beyond the financial blessings, that's one kind of blessing, but the deepest blessings of life are far beyond financial. So God, I pray over each person here uh, a new attentiveness to your call to tithing, to faithful giving. I pray for each person here that you would provide for them financially because it's out of your provision that we tithe, that we give. Would you provide for those especially who are struggling right now in a, a challenging culture, in a challenging economy? And would you throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out your blessings on your people? And God, we ask this because we want to give faithfully so that our pastors and staff and missionaries are resourced and so that our church's outreach to our community can flourish and we can see people come to know Jesus and see their lives change as they give themselves to him. We pray all this, Father, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children said, Amen.